Look at chapter 13, verse 11. And I saw another beast. I mean, the tribulation is going to be so horrible. But now we have this other beast coming, coming up out of the earth. He had two horns like a lamb, but he spoke like a dragon. And look, he exercises all the authority of the first beast in his presence and causes over and over. It keeps saying he causes. He has this this very powerful effect on people. He causes the earth and those who dwell on it to worship the first beast whose deadly wound was healed. And he performs great signs, verse 13, so that he even makes fire come down from heaven on the earth in the sight of men and deceives those uh, by these signs. Look what I wrote. The false prophet of Revelation 16, 13, 19, 20, and 2010 is the final, most powerful of all the deceiving prophets. There have always been false prophets. All the way back to the magicians in Egypt that were duplicating what Moses was doing. Satan has always been in the false department. But this one's job is to promote the worship of Satan, the originator of all false religions. So this is the ultimate pointer to Satan of all the false prophets. And he wants to get the world to do what Satan's always wanted. Satan wants, as the God of this world, to have everybody worship him. And so this person... Uh, is the puppet of Satan. He will have so much power, he can even perform supernatural events and causes, eight times it says he causes people, by mimicking God's two witnesses, by causing Satan-prompted fire to fall from heaven. Now wait a minute. Look at the number two. Beware of Satan empowering fake signs and wonders. Did you know this isn't limited to the tribulation? There are many people on Christian television today who are following people who can perform signs and wonders, but when you listen to the messages those people teach, they are contrary to the Scripture, and they're leading people astray. You do not verify a ministry by whether it can perform signs and wonders. That is one of the powerful messages why this book was so important to the church, because the church of the first century saw there's a coming false miracle worker, and so they started being very skeptical of anyone who performed signs and wonders until they heard the content of what they were bringing to see if it checks out with the Scripture. Remember, even the Bereans checked Paul's normal sermons against the Scripture, and that's what we should do. But verses 16 to 18, notice what it says, uh, and he causes both all, both small and great, rich and poor, free and slave, to receive a mark on their right hand or their forehead. This is the mark of the beast everyone talks about. So that no one can buy or sell except by the mark of his number. We already talked about that yesterday, but look at this. The mark of the beast is a chosen visible mark or ID. When John wrote to his recipients in Asia Minor, the Roman world had a mark. He uses the exact same Greek word they used. And it's the word for a soldier's brand. Do you guys ever see Russell Russell Crowe, you know, in Gladiator, digging the SPQR brand of the Roman legionnaires out. They all got, and that's the word, the mark. They were all marked that they were a Roman legionnaire. Also, if you joined a mystery cult, I've, I've told you about them, uh, the, the cults, uh, they, they were mystery, they were from Persia, many of them, and they came into Rome through the soldiers, and, and one of them, for example, they would say, uh, it was called Mithras, M-I-T-H-R-A-S, 
And the people, if you were walking down the streets of Rome in the first century and you bumped into someone, they'd say, hey, how are you? And they say, great. And they say, I've been born again. And you'd stop if, you know, you're a born-again Christian, word-of-life student. You saw him on the street, and they said, I'm born again. You'd go, I am too. Tell me about how you got born again. Oh, this Mithras mystery cult person would say, I was born again by the blood of the Son of God. And you'd go, I was too. Oh, yeah, I was washed in the blood. I was washed in the blood. Oh, and, and now you've been born again? Yes. Do you want to come to our meeting? You'd go to the meeting. Mithras met down in the depths of subterranean Rome. They would bring down living sacrificial animals. They would, while they were alive, get in a pit underneath them and take all their clothes off and slit the throat of the animal so that the blood would come out and wash them. And in that orgy down there, they were born again. See, what words mean is very important. Don't just take words at face value. You've been born again, I've been born again. Yeah, we're all born again. We've been washed by the blood. Oh, good. By the blood what? By the blood of the Son of God. Who is the Son of God? Oh, it's the bull god Mithras. Oh. See, be careful. Words matter. Uh, you know, as uh, New York Times logo is, facts matter, you know. The, the truth of the Scripture matters. And because this deceptive time is coming. Not only the mystery religions, but a slave's registration was printed on their body. Uh, Antichrist uses his mark to authorize all financial transactions, and in that moment, he becomes the most powerful human ever. But he's merely a human, and never Almighty God. When you can have people starve to death if they don't follow you, you have gotten sway over most people, because most people do anything to save their life. And that's the moment that we've come to. By the way, what's the only protection against the mark of the beast? What is it? It's the gospel. I, I have pasted that little chart I'm going to read to you right in the front of my Bible here. Let me find it. Uh, I paste it there. This is what it says. Uh, this is God's signature on my life. I've been forgiven. He removed my debts. I'm justified. Mark was talking about it last hour or two hours ago. He changed my state. I am regenerated. God transformed my heart. I am reconciled. I am become God's friend. I am adopted. God has changed my family. I am redeemed. God changed my ownership. And I am sanctified. God has changed my behavior. That's the seven elements the Bible presents that are called what God does when he saves us. He does all of those things to us. And uh, that's a little, I call it the confessing church, and it's, uh, it's on our website there. Because all the churches that, that I pastored, I had them get this, make it a card form, and when Satan tempts me to despair and tells me of the guilt within, I just look up and remind myself of what God has done for me, and I preach the gospel. You ever heard someone say you preach when you're struggling and don't feel close to the Lord? You just preach the gospel to yourself again and say, I'm forgiven, I am justified, I am regenerated, I am reconciled, I am adopted, I am redeemed and I am sanctified, and we immediately enter into life. I'm still in last hour. Life as God intended it to be. Do you remember the Christian life that, that all believers enter into? David described this way, Psalm 1611. Thou, God, will show me the path of life. So we have a guide through life. In thy presence is fullness of joy. 
We have the source of endless, overflowing joy as long as we stay close to the Lord. Now, all of us have a little indicator in our pocket that indicates how far away the cell tower is. I only have two bars here. I'm with, uh, uh, I don't even remember what carrier I have. It used to be 9X or something like that, but uh, whatever it is. There's not a tower too close because it shows me. See, I can tell how close I am to the tower by how many bars I have. You can tell how close you are to the Lord by how much joy you have. Why? Psalm 1611 says, in your presence is fullness of joy. So if this is the Lord's presence, then I would really be full because I'm close to him. But the more of this I do, the more I leave his presence, the less joy I have. And then Psalm 1611 says, at your right hand. That means when I am obedient to what he wants me to do, that's what the, the one at their right hand is the one, you know, that's my right hand man, they used to say about workers. They're the one that stays so close to the boss, they just, whatever he wants, they want to do it. If you stay at God's right hand, you know, checking in in the morning, saying, I'm starting my day, I want to live for you. God says, I'll give you endless pleasures. Did you know I had a friend, his name was Carl, and he introduced me to what life beyond understanding could ever be like. I was a student like you. I was in my uh, early days, my training days in ministry. One of our classes was how to do pastoral ministry. The teacher said, I want all of you to do a hospital visit. I said, I'm in college, 1,700 miles or whatever from home. I don't know anybody in the hospital. He says, you've got to learn to be a pastor, so go to a, any hospital in the city and go visit someone. I said, okay. You know, I was a good student, obedient, so I took my Bible, and I didn't have a car, walked everywhere. I walked to the closest hospital. And I got to the hospital, and this was in the 70s, so there were no rules back then, no masks, no nothing. And so I just walked down each hall of each floor of the hospital looking in the rooms. Probably not a good thing to do. And I just looked for someone I thought would let me talk to him. And finally, on about the third floor, I walked by and I saw about the saddest person I'd ever seen laying in bed. And I, you know, and they looked up and said, yeah. I said, hi, I'm doing hospital visitation. Could I visit you? And they said, nobody else does. I mean, real positive person. Nobody else does. You can. I said, okay. So I came to bed, and I, I found the scripture that I'd read that morning. And I said, I'm a born-again Christian, and I want to come and encourage you, and this is what God promises. And uh, I read to them from Isaiah about the God who has held him from birth and is still wanting to take care of him to the very end and tried to share the gospel, and they just sat there stone silent, motionless, and everything. I went through the whole thing and prayed with them. And I said, you know, thank you. I'd done my assignment, and I turned around to leave. They said, well, wait a minute. First time they had talked since they said I could come in. They said, I thought you wanted to help me. I said, well, I, I did. I read you the verse, and I prayed for you. They said, I'm starving. The hospital food's horrible. I want a Wendy's triple. I don't even know if they make Wendy's triples anymore. It was a three-decker hamburger that cost like, a, I think it cost 99 cents. And I was a poor college student. I used to wash other people's clothes so I could put my clothes in because I didn't have enough quarters to wash the clothes and I didn't have enough money to buy the Tide to put in it. And so I said, I'll make you a deal. If I can put mine in with yours, I'll wash them and fold them and deliver them back. But you pay for the whole thing. They said, okay, I used to do that every week. A dollar for a stranger hamburger? And I thought, I really did say I wanted to help him. So I said, 
you want me to buy you and, and smuggle into the hospital? What if he was dying of, you know, like uh, insulin, you know, levels? I would disrupt all that, but I didn't think of all that. And so I said, okay, I'll go buy you a hamburger. So I walked all the way down the street until I found a Wendy's, got it, snuck in the back door, went up three floors, handed him the Wendy's. He said, thanks, that's all. And so I said, and thank you for letting me do my hospital visit. I got my assignment done. I walked out. He says, what's your name? I said, well, I'm just down the road at the college down there. He said, what's your name? And I said, I told him. He said, where do you live on that college campus? And I told him my address. That's all he said, and I left. About three weeks later, I got an envelope in the mail at that Christian college. It was made of paper that most of you probably have never seen or felt. It's paper that's made of cloth. It has, it has cloth fibers in it. It's the most elegant paper. My name was pushed into that thick paper. It was embossed. It was, there, was, there was like a golden color to it. My name was pressed into the cloth fancy fibrous paper and I opened it and a card was inside and it was my name again are invited to dinner on this date be out front of where you live at 6 p.m. your friend from the hospital signed I'd never got a letter like that in my life I'd never seen paper like that I never my name was never pushed into anything with gold foil it was amazing so boy I got my best little preaching and suit on and stood out in front of my apart, my uh, dorm well before 6 p.m. And a limousine, one of those has multiple doors, pulled up. And the driver opened the door, and I looked, and there was the guy sitting in there from the hospital. And this, to make a long story short, Carl, his family had a 10,000-acre ranch in Texas where they grew two things, Barzona, cattle, you know, the big giant black ones that are the good steaks, and oil wells. And they were, when I finally visited him, his house, the, the seats around his, his table, each, now this is gross, and I know animal lovers, you'll be mad, but to show you their wealth, the table was held up by real ivory elephant tusks, and each seat was a real elephant's foot made from leather, and, and that's how they were big game hunters in Africa back when people could do that in the 70s and all that stuff. But what he said at dinner, and by the way, dinner was amazing. They, we went to a restaurant. You don't even stop. You just walk. They take you to a table. They don't really talk to you. There are no menus. There's no, it's just so different. It's like we were in this fancy house. We sat down, and all of a sudden, a person came walking out with a towel over the thing, pushing a little cart, and they pulled back the cloth, and it was a marble slab, and it was a quarter side of beef. And they sharpened their tool, and they told you all the different cuts you could have of your beef, and they would cut it at the table and, and cook it and bring it back to you. You talk about fresh. So at that meal, I had never experienced that. It was fun, driving in the big car. He said, hey, he says, by the way, I'm a Christian too. He said, and it was really nice of you to come visit me. And he said, I acted like I acted to see if you were, you know, genuine or not. And he said, so thank you. No one's ever visited me in the hospital before. And he said, I was, thank you. He said, what are you doing this summer? I said, oh, I'm going on a missions team. I'm going to smuggle Bibles in Eastern Europe. I already told you about that. 
He said, when are you starting to smuggle Bibles? And I told him the date. He said, what are you doing the week before? I said, you know, I used to paint fences to earn money. I said, I'm going to be painting fences to earn money. He says, how about you skip that for a week and just let me show you Europe that you've probably never seen. I said, okay. So I flew on my missions trip ticket over to London. And when I started to get off the airplane, I walked through the door. You know how you do pulling your little bag? There was a person standing there with my sign with my name on it. I didn't go in the terminal. Did you know that, that airline, those ways into the airport, they also have little doors in them that go down somewhere. That person took me down the stairway. There was a car waiting there. I didn't go through all the bumping around. They got my bag from, from the bag place. I rode in the car. I mean, I went, Ugh. they said, Carl's waiting for you. I said, okay. So we rode up to a hotel. You didn't go to the front desk and give them the credit card. They took you in a back door, up an elevator to your room. No question. These people are watching over you. They said, Carl, get ready for dinner. Carl will get you, you know, in an hour. So I, and my bag was already there. I went, oh, this is amazing. So I got ready, and I only had two outfits, so I wore one of them. Carl said, hey, you ready for dinner? I said, yeah. He said, let's go to my favorite place. We went to a restaurant. I thought it was an aquarium. It had a fish tank as big as your wall right there, solid glass, deep fish tank, and all kinds of fish were swimming around. And I said, what do they serve here? He said, fish. I said, really? He said, yeah. He said, look down. The, the pictures show what kind. What kind do you want? He said, I like soul. I said, well, I want soul. Someone went down, speared it, and they took it up and cooked it and brought it to our plate, I mean to our table. I said, I didn't know places like this existed. He said, well, people like you probably would never see them. He said, there's a whole world that wealthy, wealthy, wealthy people live in that none of the commoners ever see. He said, we're going to see Orphan Annie. This is in 1978. Orphan Annie was, was big in London, the original Orphan Annie. We, the play, and we got there, and we went in the back door again, none of this ticket lines. We go in the back door, they take us to a box seat. I was sitting on the box seat. Annie was singing right there. I could see her eyelashes. I mean, we were, I mean, it was like, where is everybody else? They, I mean, all the other people were sitting back there somewhere. I don't know where they were. We were right here. And that's how the whole trip was. That was the first night. We went from place to place to place to place to place I never knew existed. And you know what I thought? That's Carl, and it's because he was a multi-multi-millionaire. Guess what? Psalm 1611 says, God wants to give you a life that is indescribably wonderful. Now, along the way, you might suffer. You might even suffer ultimately. You might even be called upon to lose your life for his sake. But he says, if you stay with me, in my presence is fullness of joy. At my right hand are endless pleasures, and I will guide you through life. I got a small taste of that with Carl. The lesson for you is that you should always visit people in the hospital. You'll never know uh, what happens. But that, Okay, we're in part 15. What is the eternal gospel? That shows up in our text in chapter 14. We're still in the tribulation. We're still in that red block that I, you've seen. And we're encountering now the 144,000 after they finish their tour of duty. That's what chapter 14 is. And so... The tide for the war of the world has turned in Revelation 14. Jesus is now standing on the holy hill of Zion in chapter 14. Beneath Zion, the beast from the abyss 
empowered by Satan, has crawled ashore. On the earth, death stalks all who refuse Satan and turn to Jesus. That's what's happening. Everybody that gets saved is martyred. It's an instantaneous price. But we see them standing on Zion. They're secure, they're joyful, they're pure, and they're his servants. What we're looking at in chapter 14, if you want to look at verse 1 with me of Revelation 14, let me get there. What we're looking at is the compassion. And what I call this, I wrote in my journal when I was studying this, like you are, I just read verse 1, and it says, I looked, and behold, a lamb standing in Mount Zion, and with him were 144,000. Look at this. Having his father's name written on their foreheads. And I heard a voice from heaven, like the voice of many waters, like the voice of a loud thunder, and I heard the sound of harpists. Thunder and harpists. What we're seeing is something amazing. We're seeing, we're feeling Jesus. You notice where he is? He's standing with them. Remember when Stephen was being stoned? Do you remember that in Acts? When Saul was standing there with the coats and they were stoning Stephen to death in Acts? Do you remember what he said just before the last stone crushed his life out of him? He said, I see the, the Son of God. I see Jesus standing at the right hand of the Father. Did you ever catch that? Jesus went in the ascension to be seated at the right hand of the Father. When Stephen saw him just before he died, why was Jesus standing? Because he was coming to get him. See, that's the compassion of Jesus. Jesus is standing with these because he stood and walked them through the valley of the shadow of death. These are the people that were his missionaries that are leading the innumerable multitude to the Lord who are going through all the horrors of the tribulation for Christ's sake. And he's standing with them. It's beautiful. But Jesus offers true security and joy. Secondly, as the world plunges into desolation and destruction, God is showing us living proof of his care. Do you see why the book of Revelation was so popular for the first century? They just were all over this. They said, wow, if, if the emperor marches us in the arena and we're killed by the lions, Jesus is going to be right there and standing with us, and they're going to be playing the harps, and I can't wait to get there. See, they were believing all this. With Jesus are his blameless, unstoppable witnesses. This picture is telling us more about these 144,000. By the way, the 144,000 were normal people like us. These are not angels. These are normal humans, and it shows you what God can do with a normal person. Look what he can do. They are blameless, unstoppable witnesses who have security because their father's name is written on their forehead. God says, you are mine. You know, God has named all the stars. They're merely inanimate objects. He calls them each by name, but God's servants have God's name on their foreheads. Did you know if you're saved here this morning, you also are sealed by the Holy Spirit? And Jesus has a new name, Revelation 3, remember when we covered that? That he's going to declare your new name, my new name, before our Father in heaven? See, we, we have the same true security and joy as them. And all the people in the first century were saying, wow, this is an amazing salvation that we have. Now, where we are, remember all these charts? We've gone through, I guess I'll see it here, all the green grass and trees. Remember I told you about that? And the asteroid comes and the comet comes. The Lord 
fourthly dials back the sun, then those demon locusts come, and then those four angels by the Euphrates come, and it's the largest loss of human life. And then we have all the chapter 10 stuff, and then chapter 11. We've gone through all that. This is what those witnesses have lived through. They lived through a fourth of all humans dying and a third of all humans dying. And they faithfully served the Lord through all that carnage, trying to win more people to Christ. God calls himself a savior. God always has evangelists. The church, these 144,000, the two witnesses we just saw die, next we're going to run into the gospel angel and then the millennial temple. But look at the details. This is this I love. And you talk about, I used to preach this as a youth pastor because it's so, Jesus offers purity in a sea of filth. Remember Herodotus described the Roman Empire as living in a cesspool of sin? I would say that, that all of us are living in a cesspool of sin now in our culture we live in where death and killing and occultic things and immoral things and, and everything else is just common. We live in an unshocked generation. People aren't shocked by sin anymore. They're acquainted with it. But look at verse 3. They sang as it were a new song before the throne, before the four living creatures and the elders, and no one could learn that song except the 144,000 who were redeemed from the earth. So these have special privileges because they did this special work for the Lord. These are the ones who were not defiled with women. Wait a minute. Women are defiling? What is this saying? Is this, this is bad. No, no. The, the way this is put is, these have chosen because they were saved that they would have nothing to do with Revelation 9.21. What did Revelation 9.21 say? That the whole world was involved in sexual immorality. The whole world was, was I mean, I don't know if they all have their VR headsets on and they're just, uh, but they are completely engrossed in sexual immorality. These 144 were not. They lived around it. They were in a sea of filth, but they weren't letting it seep in. Boy, is that good news. That means it's possible. It's possible to deny ungodliness and worldly lusts. For they were virgins. These were the ones who followed the Lamb wherever he goes. These were redeemed from among men. These were first fruits to God and the Lamb. Do you know what this is? They were virgins after they were saved. It doesn't say they were born. They were not, you know, immaculate, sinless. But they were redeemed and saved. And from the instant of their salvation on, they never allowed their body to be sinned against the Holy Spirit living within by committing sexual immorality. It's wonderful. Well, look at this. These, John explains more about those who are singing the song. Earth dwellers are drunk on fornication. We already read about that. The wine of their passion, that's in 14.8. Um, all nations are drunk with the wine of the wrath of fornication. So everybody is into this sinful life because they won't repent of murder and sorcery and immorality or stealing. But against that backdrop of complete wickedness, God's servants stand, there's a typo, out in purity. 
They stand out. Fourth, Jesus offers truth. These servants of the Lord live truth in a world of lies. Uh, look at verse 5. And in their mouth was found no deceit. They are without fault before the throne of God. I mean, it's amazing. The world, however, is like their father, the devil, who desires. He's a murderer. He doesn't stand the truth. He's, there's no truth in him. But Jesus said, believers, put away lying. And so these accepted Christ's offer. He said, I'm the way, the truth, and life. They said, we're going to be truthful. He said that I'm come to, to make you a, a holy and pure temple of God. They said, that's what we want. We will not get defiled. Did you know that, that sexual immorality is a choice? Do you say yes or no to? So is fantasizing. So is, is giving in to temptation. It's a choice. And the Lord says, I've set you free. And if I've set you free, you're really free. You don't have to give in to that. Well, that means God can sanctify us anywhere and all the time if we allow him to. This description is what God can do with consecrated individuals. You know, my greatest desire when I was your age, I said, Lord, remember I told you every night I would walk the campus at night when they let us out of study hall and I'd go walking around the 260 acres and I'd get to the spot, look at the stars, and I'd say, I know your eyes are running to and fro throughout the earth and I'm waving my hand that I want my heart to be completely yours. See, that's what it's talking about. We can live a life of consecration kept from immorality and deceit even in the most demon-polluted times there will ever be. That's why Revelation was written. Now that's cause for hope. Since Jesus could keep them, he can keep us. By the way, there are only healthy Christians and sick Christians. There aren't 27 grades of Christians. There's just two, the healthy ones and the sick ones. Which are you? Well, let's do some vital signs. You know, we can do a little medical thing here. Pop-up medical clinic. There are seven vital signs of how you're doing, how we're doing, how I'm doing spiritually. And all of these are healthy believers are, number one, prompted by love. Their consecrated living is not them saying, I'm going to try my hardest, and I, you know, I'm going to really do this, I'm going to keep all the rules, and I'm going to just, no. Look at what John 14, 21 says. He who has my commandments, the word of God, and keeps them. Well, that word keep is a very interesting word. You know what it means? Tereo. Look it up in your logos. It means to guard. It's like soldiers guarding Paul in prison. Soldiers guarding James and John in prison. Soldiers guarding the tomb of Christ. If, if you keep, you guard my word. That means it's, it's important to you. It's vital in your life. That's how you know you love me. And he who loves me, as soon as we say, Lord, I... I mean, with my whole heart, I, I want you. I want, I want you to have all of me. I already have all of you. I want you to have all of me. Look what the Lord does. I will love him and manifest myself to him. Have you ever met people that every time they, you have devotion in the rooms or you know, you're in a small group with them or you hear them sharing, it's just like, whoa, that really was impactful. How do you know all that? The secret is right there. The people that love the Lord and 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 guard their, their time with him and, and obeying him, I love them and manifest myself. See, the Lord, Revelation 3.20, every day is knocking. And he says, can I come in? I'd like to spend time with you. 
I'd like to revolutionize your day. You go, I, I can't, don't have time for the Bible this morning. Got to study, you know, and everything. Oh, I don't have time. I've got to keep up with all my friends, you know. Oh, I don't have time. I've got to get ready. The Lord says, mm, another day. Didn't have time for me. I want to manifest myself. So they're prompted by love, okay? Secondly, they're trained by grace. See, we live a holy life because we love the Lord, not because we have to, someone's watching, you know, they've got security cameras around here, and I don't want to, my parents paying a lot of money, I don't want to get in trouble. That's a very bad reason to obey the Lord. It's prompted by love, second, trained by grace. The grace of God that saves us, verse 12, teaches us to deny ungodliness and worldly lusts. And I ask the Lord all the time, I want to know more how to, how to deny ungodliness, how to not let worldly lusts have any place to start conquering parts of me. I want to live soberly, righteously, godly in my world. How do I do that? Verse 13, I'm looking for the blessed hope and the glorious appearing of my Savior. And like Jonathan Edwards said, resolved not to do anything I would be ashamed of doing when Jesus comes. See, it's a simple way of living, saying, I know you're watching. So, prompted by love, trained by grace. Now look at number three. A healthy believer makes daily choices. It isn't enough to say, yeah, I did that when I was 13 or 12. I went forward. I, I, I dedicated my life or whatever. Paul doesn't, doesn't talk in those terms. What he says is, look at this. We're supposed to be constantly, Ephesians 4.22, making these choices to put off concerning my former conduct. Every time I see myself acting the way I used to act, I don't want that. I want to get rid of that. The old man which grows corrupt according to deceitful lust. And I want to constantly be renewed. And he already told us in Romans 12, the renewing of your mind comes through the truth of the Word of God. And I want to put on the new man that was created according to God in true righteousness. I want more and more of my life to be under God's control. The moment I got saved, I got all of God. You get everything at once. It's just, he doesn't have all of us. There was a great Christian author, his name was Robert Boyd Munger. He wrote a little tiny booklet called My Heart, Christ's Home. And what he says is that when we get saved, it's like Christ is in the living room, but we don't want him in the kitchen. And certainly not in the fridge, you know, so we keep him in the living room. And then all of a sudden he starts wandering around and say, oh, you can't go in the bedroom. I don't want you to see what's in there. Oh, you can't go down the basement. No, the closet is locked. And he said the Christian life is constantly throwing everything open. And anything Christ disapproves of, get rid of it. Put it off. Renew that part and put in what he wants it to be. Fourthly, a healthy believer makes sacred vows. Here's a great one. Have you ever marked Psalm 101.3? This is David. David wrote three psalms or more when he was young. Uh, he wrote the, the 101st Psalm, probably the 19th, probably the 23rd. Because he talks about being a shepherd and all this and living in Bethlehem. Look what he says. I will set nothing wicked before my eyes. I remember raising our kids, um, teaching. I mean, none of these verses, that verse is 3,000 years old. I remember teaching this to my older boys, and I forgot the younger kids that are fiddling around. They're always listening too. 
one day I was walking at the outlets with two of, we have eight children and the big four and the little four, and I had two of the little four. And I was walking like this, thinking, you know, and walking because, you know, mom and the rest were doing something and I don't like to shop. So I was just walking, you know, my laps around. And all of a sudden, one of the two buddies, it was kind of like I was dragging him. So I just kept walking, but I was going like this. And I finally looked back at him and I said, what are you doing? And he was walking like, he was holding my hand, but he was going. And I said, what are you doing? And he went, we were walking in front of the Playtex, Bally, whatever, and there was like a 40-foot-high woman in her underwear on their window. And he was going, I said, what are you doing? He said, I will set nothing wicked before my eyes. Does that ever happen to you? Do advertisements, do images, do previews, do trailers, do shows offend you? Do, have you made a sacred vow? I will set nothing God calls wicked before my eyes, and I will hate everything that those who fall away from God are promoting, and it's not going to cling to me. You know, a good boat. They take it out of the water all the time and scrape the barnacles off. Barnacles are little creatures that, that are tiny and they stick to the boat and then they grow, 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 grow. And they slowly drag and slow down the boat and so it's using too much fuel and so they bring it into dry dock, put it up and get these tools and they blast away at those barnacles that have encrusted the boat. You know what? We should make sacred vows to go to dry dock regularly and say, I don't want any of the things that offend you, grieve you, quench you to cling to me. Next, purge bad files. I always think about this. Did you know I was a truck driver in the good old days? I got done, you know, uh, high school was interesting to me, but, you know, I got all done in three years. The four-year high school I went to. I used to go after school. I'd go early. I worked summer school. So I got done with high school in three years. And I said, what do you do now? They said, oh, you just get a job. You have to stay for the fourth year, but you can go get a job. So I didn't even go my last year. I'd already finished high school and won my scholarship and did everything, and I started working. And they had all these jobs, and I decided to be a truck driver just to try it out. So I worked for a battery company, and I used to take my truck. It was the one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight wheeler. It wasn't a 13-wheeler. It wasn't a semi. It was just those big, heavy ones, especially the ones that have the extra wheels that go down when they really load it, you know, and tandem. And so I would take my truck and my little um, clipboard. We used to have paper stuff. And I would back my truck up, put on the air brakes, jump out, and get my clipboard, and I would slide it across. And I remember my very first day delivering at the loading dock, and I delivered it across, and I looked up, and I went... Now, remember, I was raised in a good Christian home, went to church three times a week. Behind the shipping receiving clerk desk was the centerfold, not just one, all of them. This guy was an addict to some pornography magazine, and he had taped behind him all the centerfolds. The centerfold is a bunch of pages of, a, of an immoral magazine where if you unfold it, it's almost life-size, and, and he had glued them up. And it was the first time, I was 19 years old, it was the first time in my whole life I ever saw a woman with no clothes on, ever. 
it was shocking. And I, I mean, I, I, I wish it was even faster, but it was, I saw it and I looked away, but the problem is, if my cell phone has a 14 teraflop camera, my head has a even better one. It was recorded, what I saw. And I remember that image stayed with me for too long until I was at Bible college. Remember, that was my senior year. Then I went to Bible college. And I was memorizing the book of Hebrews, all 303 verses. And I was pacing in my dorm room, memorizing Hebrews out loud. How much more shall the blood of Christ who through the... No, how much more shall the... How much more shall the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offer himself without spot, purge your... I opened my eyes. What was that verse saying? How much more shall the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offer himself without spot to God, purge your conscience from dead works to serve the living God? I was in Bible college and I was constantly haunted. By the way, I fled from the desk where the pinups were and I went to the restroom because you used the restroom at the loading dock because you were driving between all your accounts. When I got to the restroom, guess what was in the restroom? It was worse than the loading dock. It was stacks. The guy's entire life's collection of every type of pornographic magazine, he had them all. I mean, this guy was a real uh, immoral type. It was horrible. I felt like I was in the Roman world, surrounded. Did you know what I learned? God can purge the bad files. Did you know that there is no memory you have of anything you did that was wrong or anything you saw that was wrong or anything you heard that was wrong that offends God? There is not one thing that God, through the eternal spirit who offered himself without spot to God, can't purge. The Lord can actually go into your mind, open the files, and clean that out. The problem is we don't want him to because some of these are very dear to us. Events and things and stuff that we've done or said or heard or seen. But God offers complete removal. That's not all. Healthy believers don't just purge the bad files. They reclaim boldness. A little bit later, I was, you know, pacing along. I had already been overwhelmed by that verse as I was memorizing Hebrews. Now I got to Hebrews 10.22, and it says, Let us draw near in full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. And I went, what? Let us draw near to God in full assurance of faith? Every time I read the New Testament, I read about people that were bold for the Lord. And I, at times, wasn't bold. We reclaim boldness by drawing near to God because he's cleansed our heart, because we've been honest with him and let him clean us out as often as we need it. It's not like, once and every bad thing is gone. But it's once I decide I don't want the bad things. And he keeps cleansing them away. But we can have full assurance of faith that our hearts have been sprinkled. 9.14 talks about that. From that evil conscience. And our bodies are washed with pure water. What's the pure water? The washing by the word. The scriptures talk about it. Your body's washed with the pure water of the word of God. We constantly are being cleansed. And all of this means that healthy believers are constantly renewing their consecration. Romans 6 talks all about it. It talks about all those imperatives that we're not supposed to present our members anymore. Then Paul concludes it in Romans 12 saying, I beg you, believers, because of all God did for you, present your body as a living sacrifice. What does that mean? Every day I'm going to live like I died with Christ. Every day I'm going to live 
like I'm on the altar. I want to be holy. I want to be acceptable, pleasing to you. It's your, and it's, this is an interesting word, your reasonable service. The, the word there is liturgos. It's the idea of a worship sacrifice. I'm, a, I'm offering this like a sacrifice of worship. And I don't want to be conformed to the world. I want you to transform my mind. Wow. Now we get to the eternal gospel. We only have five minutes. Look at verses 6 and 7. So these healthy believers are in heaven, but now I saw another angel flying in the midst of heaven having the everlasting gospel. The everlasting gospel. You know, one of my times reading through the Bible, I told you I read the Bible through once a month for several years until I caught up and got way ahead of my age. Every time I look for something, you know what I look for once? Every time the gospel's talked about. You know, everybody debates it, and you have all kinds of books and camps and groups, but most people don't know what the Bible says. What the Bible says is, rarely does the Bible present the gospel the same way twice. But this one's interesting. This is the everlasting gospel. God sent us the everlasting gospel to preach to those who dwell on the earth, to everyone, every nation, tribe, tongue, and people. This is important. And this angel who's come directly from the presence of God is giving the ultimate declaration of the gospel of the God of the universe, and he says this, fear God, give glory to him, for the hour of his judgment has come, worship him. Remember I talked to you in chapter 11 about how important worship is, how it quickens and, you know, and, and, and transforms us? Worship him. Look at this. Who made heaven and earth, the sea and the springs of water. Creationism does matter. Wow. I mean, it's not just Ken Ham and his ark and all. God says, for those people to be saved, they had to believe that he is the one he declared he was. The creator, who is the only one that can be your redeemer, or else you'll face him as judge. Wow. God adds a third source. The 144,000 are out there, and they finished. The two witnesses were out there, and they were martyred. Now he sends the gospel angel. And the message is turned to the true and living God. Bow to him, obey him, worship him. God proclaims the entire world through an angel flying overhead that can be heard his eternal gospel. And by the way, it's the very same gospel. In the New Testament, it's called the gospel of God. It's called the gospel of grace. It's called the gospel of Christ. It's called the gospel of peace. It's called the glorious gospel. It's called the gospel of the kingdom. Anyone even here at the crescendo of the tribulation who will turn to God will be gloriously saved. Wow. I mean, you know what that is? It's the gospel angel. And you know, I don't think we're going to turn the world around because you see in the future they're not turned around. We're not going to save the planet because you see it being destroyed before your eyes. The ecology isn't going to get better and better and better. But I still have a great hope going through life because I know those who I lead to Christ will not be marked by the Antichrist because they will already be sealed by the Holy Spirit of God and they will have a future and a hope. That's why we can have hope in a world of doom. We don't simply hide out sitting on a mountaintop waiting for the end of the world. We rescue as many people as we can by telling them about Jesus, which reminds me, Bonnie and I started out married life. I told you this, we'd eat every day. I worked at, at uh, Grace Community Church. We'd eat every day at the pantry. After our second week, the waiter we had every day wearing this black hat who had nostrils this big that were red. You know what that means? He snorted Coke. When someone snorts Coke, it capillates you know, your blood vessels, your nose swells up, turns red, it runs. It's, it's hard. 
to snort cocaine. But that guy, we were sitting there, Bonnie and I, every morning, we'd eat our breakfast, we'd read our Bible, back and forth between shoes. And finally, our waiter came over, Mr. You know, Big Nostril, and he came like this, and he got our attention by looking it up. He gave us an even better view of his notes. And he said to us, I'll never forget this, hey man, what are you two on? He was asking what drug we were on. He said, I've been serving you for two weeks. You're high every morning. He said, I snort cocaine. I said, I can tell you snort cocaine. He said, it only lasts a little while. I've got to get more money and get more. He said, what are you two on? He said, it doesn't seem to wear out. Do you know what he was asking us to do? Share the gospel. See, that's the gospel of hope that Jesus offers compassion in the midst of judgment. The most noted emotion of Christ was compassion. And the way we get it is to ask Christ for it and to put it on. 